Hey, I'm Jody Butts, and welcome to Season 2 of the At Res Podcast, brought to you by Interact. I hope everyone had a great summer and has been vaccinated. At Risk returns to you in the beginning phase of an unfortunate fourth wave of COVID-19, in the middle of a federal election, and following the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan and a summer of forest fires, hurricanes, and flooding. For this season opener, even with all that's going on, or perhaps especially because of all that's going on, we wanted to ask, what about the children? And for answers, we turn to Sarah Austin, world-class champion for children and the founder and CEO of Children First Canada. Sarah helps us understand the top 10 threats to childhood, gives us some data to chew on, as well as some evidence-based ideas for how we can do better for kids. In addition, you'll want to be sure to listen to the end to hear from Simi Sohota, who is a grade 12 student from Surrey, BC, and a member of the Young Canadians Parliament with Children First Canada. She shares with us her message to the federal party leaders. Whether you're a parent, grandparent, or simply care about the future of Canada, you'll take a lot away from this conversation. Thank you for joining me, Sarah, and welcome to At Risk. Thanks so much, Jody. It's great to be here. Sarah, one of the things we've learned from season one of the At Risk podcast is that it's really important to contextualize our thinking, that sometimes our instincts fail us. So help us understand, where does Canada rank as a place for a child to grow up? And what's that based on? Well, there is a very persistent myth, Jody, that Canada is already a, a world-leading country for kids when it's, in fact, that simply isn't true. Over the past decade, Canada's gone from being ranked 10th to 30th out of 38 wealthy nations for children's well-being, according to UNICEF. You know, that's pretty startling, I think, for most Canadians to hear. And, uh, you know, I think quite perplexing because we tend to think of ourselves as being world leaders on so many fronts for democracy and human rights and our healthcare system and on and on. But when it comes to our kids, you know, we've really seen a very steady decline in the protection of their human rights and their health and well-being. And that's really why I started Children First Canada was really to change that trajectory and getting us back to becoming uh, a world-leading country for children to grow up in. Yeah, I'm sure that's startling for a lot of people. So let's dig into it. What's driving this decline in childhood well-being? We have seen a really systematic um, underinvestment in children's health and well-being. Uh, we have pretty startling indicators on children's development. So things like child poverty, we have uh, close to one in five kids growing up in poverty in Canada. You know, there were some uh, modest improvements being made in recent years, but you know, we've seen significant setbacks during the pandemic uh, with um, really high levels of, um, in, of food insecurity, for instance, there has been a 39% increase in food insecurity over the past year and a half with, um, particularly true for families with young children, you know, having to access food banks, but also things like school, school closures really had a very significant impact with, uh, kids losing access to breakfast and lunch programs, uh, that not only impact their ability to get nutritious food, but to be able to, 
um, you know, engage in a healthy, effective way in school to be able to learn and uh, relate well to their peers and, um, you know, a whole host of other factors. Uh, you know, mental health has been steadily declining. We've seen systematic underinvestments in mental health. You know, over the past decade, there's been a 66% increase in kids being admitted to emergency rooms for mental health concerns, which is a signal that kids um, aren't accessing or aren't able to access mental health supports within their community from their long-term health care providers. And, uh, you know, there just really hasn't been, uh, kids haven't been figured prominently provincially or federally on, on, on the political agenda. And I think Canadians are still stuck in this mentality that we were a world leader and have lost um, a sense of, of where we rank. And that's part of the purpose of the, the work that we do at Children First Canada is to raise awareness and really trying to put kids' issues on the radar, uh, to harness data about what's happening in the lives of our kids and getting us back to um, putting bold leadership in place and bold investments and trying to really change this trajectory in a meaningful way. Mm. In terms of that myth, that this is one of the best places for kids to grow up, does getting to the right solutions that will improve this ranking require dismantling that myth? Absolutely. There are proven and effective solutions that will you know, measurably improve the lives of our children. Uh, we have looked at uh, countries around the world where they are in the top 10 and to see what they are doing, the types of investments they have, the policies that are in place, um, and what's changing within their society to really help their kids survive and thrive. And, you know, we have in this federal election put forward a children's platform that we think will really help to move the needle. Um, you know, solutions like having an independent commissioner for children and youth uh, would really make a significant difference. Actually, you know, it's not surprising that if you put somebody in charge, you give them a mandate and give them some resources, you'll start to see traction. This has been something that's been studied for, for decades in Canada. There's been multiple private members' bills uh, within the House and the Senate, but they never seem to cross the finish line. And so this is something that we would really like to see move forward, and it's not costly. It, you know, we've estimated it's probably $8 million a year, which is equivalent to a dollar per child. And, uh, you know, having somebody independent to lead the charge, to work with federal departments, to work with the provinces and really put together a national plan of action would significantly move things forward. I think we have most of the policy platforms now from all the major parties during the federal election. How do the election platforms stack up, Sarah? Well, we've looked at each of them and we're watching them closely and, and all the announcements that are happening on a daily basis. You know, there are little bits and pieces in each of them that I think would be meaningful um, on different issues like mental health and housing and poverty, um, on reconciliation. But we're just not seeing the comprehensive and really bold leadership that's required. Kids are in a state of crisis in our country, and I'm not overstating that. You know, earlier this year, we, along with children's hospitals and children's charities, declared Code Pink. You know, that's a pediatric emergency. Children's lives are in danger. Um, we are in a state of crisis, and uh, it's really going to require a very um, bold plan and significant investments to to um, address the immediate threats that kids are facing, let alone to turn the tide and really getting us back to becoming a world-leading country for kids. And, um, you know, in, in light of the crisis that we're in and the latest Raising Canada report that we've released with, with very startling findings and, and bold recommendations, we're just not seeing that type of leadership right now, that type of commitment that's needed. And, you know, we hope that, um, you know, we've still got a couple of weeks left in this election that we're going to start to see some traction on that and Canadians, um, you know, Adults and kids alike speaking up, calling on the federal leaders, calling on the local candidates to do better and to make a big, bold plan uh, to put kids at the heart of our pandemic recovery. Well, 
I think you have a good moment to try and get some traction here, uh, you know, in dis- despite the piecemeal approach of the federal parties. Last year, we spoke with four parents about their decision-making as to whether to send their children to in-person learning or to virtual learning. And what a fraud and difficult process that was for them. I think it's fair to say that things only got worse, at least in Ontario, as a parent and in terms of how you were feeling your kids were doing. Um, One of the key themes of that discussion last September and something that has continued to play out is that as parents, we're trying our best, right? Like, we're trying to do the right things. We're reading incredibly large amounts of materials, just trying to find clues as to how to support the mental health of our kids, to try to better support their physical health, uh, make sure that the kids are staying on track with their learning goals. Um, but at a certain point, you know, and this came out in the discussion, you just throw up your hands because it's kind of out of your hands. A lot of this needs to happen at a policy level. And it's certainly a personal frustration. And I've heard it from others. So much is being put on our shoulders as parents when really these are things that governments need to do. They need to set policy. They need to set the standards and they need to create that safety net for all kids. We can't do it as individuals. What's your thoughts on that? Absolutely. I 100% agree with you, Jody. And I do believe, I agree with you. We are at a, um, we're at a moment in time where parents have, have done their best. You know, every parent wants to do their very best for their child. And I think every parent that I know and have heard from over the past year and a half has just given everything they can to help their child get through this pandemic and um, survive. I mean, I don't think any of us are really thriving, but to just to get through this pandemic. But we do rely on public policies, provincially, federally, to ensure the survival and well-being of our children. And in many ways, um, as a society, we have failed kids. We asked kids to make enormous sacrifices. They gave up school, birthday parties, sports, um, play dates, uh, physical activity, and so much more. But when it came to protecting our children and providing the supports that they need, um, we just, you know, at a public policy level, just didn't provide it for them. And parents are angry. Grandparents are angry. They've had enough. Um, we've seen a rise of parental activism that I have never witnessed in my 20 plus years of advocating for children. Uh, parents have taken to social media in enormous numbers to speak, particularly at a provincial level around issues like schools and public health restrictions. Um, to advocate for their kids. Um, and I, you know, I hope that we'll see that rise of parental activism in the coming days in the election, um, to see that Canadians demand and expect better for our children. You know, the future of our country depends on our children. Um, and we all know that every single day matters in the life of a child when we delay acting and putting, um, um, the supports that our kids need, um, in place, uh, it jeopardizes their survival. You know, looking at issues, for instance, like mental health, where suicide remains a leading cause of death for children ages 10 to 19. Like this is one of the stats in our latest report that I find most galling. I'm, I'm the mom of a 10-year-old and this one keeps me up at night. And I've heard from so many kids in this pandemic who have just really um, come to the brink and who have lost hope and who don't have mental health supports in their community. They're on wait lists upwards of months, sometimes years to access support. And so they have to go to an emergency room um, if they're in a mental health crisis. I mean, that 
is just outrageous to me as a parent, uh, let alone as a citizen and an advocate for all 8 million kids in our country. And I really do hope that we, we, we see parents rise up, um, grandparents as well. You know, I think part of the challenge here is that we're all just so tired. You know, we're all worn down by this pandemic and have so little left to give. We've done our best at an individual level. And, and so when it comes to advocating and, you know, t- having the wherewithal to show up at candidate forums or, you know, to go beyond, you know, activating at a social media level, you know, how do we really create the societal demand that things have to get better for the sake of our children and for the sake of our country. I want to clarify something. So this isn't the first year of the report uh, by any stretch, and and it was showing a decline. So it's not that the pandemic has created the created these issues, correct? No, we had a child health crisis even before the pandemic began. You know, we have been steadily declining for a decade, you know, going from 10th to now 30th place. Um, and that was just the, the rank of 30th was actually at the beginning of the pandemic. We're still waiting for UNICEF's latest scorecard to come out and we'll see what shows up in that. But uh, the pandemic has just accelerated, you know, what was already there, um, you know, systemic racism experienced by uh, First Nations, Métis and Inuit children, Black and other racialized kids. Uh, those issues have been accelerated. Um, children's mental health concerns have just been further accelerated. You know, children's hospitals, for instance, saw some of them saw a 223% increase beyond capacity for admissions for eating disorders. I mean, it just, yeah, it, it, it was a bad situation that has just become horrific. And uh, often these things just happen quietly behind the scenes, you know, in in homes and um, and kids just suffer in silence. Uh, you know, we are all posting these happy, cheerful images of our kids going back to school, but in their backpacks, you know, here in um, Calgary this week, kids went back to school and, you know, in the days to come, they'll be going back across the country. We think of this as being a really happy time, but we know so many kids are just suffering behind closed doors you know, on these long wait lists, accessing mental health supports or rehab or surgeries, all these things have just um, culminated over the past year and a half just to, to reach this this crisis point. And so much uncertainty, right? Like, you know, my kids keep asking me, do you think schools are going to close down again? <laughs> you know, they and, and uncertainty, you know, markets don't like uncertainties. As adults, you know, uh, human beings, we don't cope with uncertainty very well. So tough. Uh, for kids, and especially around something so fundamental as school. Absolutely. I think you've hit the nail on the head. Kids thrive when they have predictability in their lives, when they have a sense of stability and security. And that all went out the window a year and a half. And, uh, you know, we as parents have a hard time coping with it. Our adults, you know, we we all like to have some sense of predictability in our lives. But for kids, it's really um, critical to their uh, mental health and their well-being and it's just not there right now. We are sending kids back to school, not knowing what happens um, a day from now, let alone a week from now. And uh, that um, living in that state of um, unpredictability for so long has really taken a toll on their their, their social well-being. And um, it's not going to change anytime soon. I mean, here in Alberta, we have these escalating rates of, of, of COVID in our communities. And um, school closures are a very real possibility for for us here in, in, in this province um, in the very near future. And that's very concerning to me as a parent. And really, that's if your child is 
even able to go to school. Um, I was reading a piece by Sue Robbins, uh, who lives in Vancouver and is a parent to a child with Down syndrome. She wrote an op-ed in the Globe and Mail, and she pointed out, as she was speaking about BC specifically, um, and I'd be interested in what your take is, um, if you have one across the other provinces, that back-to-school plans are not being designed for the most vulnerable children. And that is who we should be lifting everybody up. And really, what's happening right now with these back-to-school plans, they're not great for any child, but a child who has a particular vulnerability to this virus, they're just being shut out of schools right now. Are, are any other provinces doing better on this? Uh, it's a real patchwork of approaches, Jody, and I can't tell you how many parents uh, who've reached out to me with children with disabilities, um, you know, autism, and um, children with compromised immune systems who simply haven't been able to um, put their kids back into into in-person learning, even when it's been available to them. Um, and when virtual learning was happening, it was certainly far from adequate uh, for, for many kids with disabilities. Um, they have just been forgotten in so many of these plans. Now, not to mention that so many provinces have, you know, forgotten or, you know, failed to do anything about the fact that there are substantial numbers of kids who, under the age of, well, kids under the age of 12 who are not yet eligible for vaccination. And there's a real patchwork of approaches around trying to ensure their protection from, from COVID. Masking mandates are really inconsistent. Some provinces started at, um, grade one, some start at grade four. Well, you know, what about the kids who are under those ages who, who don't have protection? You know, the Canadian Pediatric Society, the Canadian Medical Association have both called for universal masking in schools and most provinces haven't provided that. Um, and, and those that have provided have real gaps in it around things like field trips or lunches or, you know, class sizes that are really going to put, um, you know, the six million kids under the age of 12 at grave risk. Uh, not to mention the kids who were even more vulnerable because of compromised immune systems or disabilities. And, um, you know, we have really failed so many children and it's inexcusable and it's got to change. So there's a stereotype of, you know, the politician kissing a baby. You know, theoretically, <laughs> that's communicating that, you know, Politics and kids are a home run, you know, like uh, only hospital ribbon cuttings are a close second. And yet, you know, what, what, what you're very clearly telling us and what the evidence is very clear on is that children are totally overlooked from, from a, a public policy perspective. Like, how, how is that? How can that be? Well, I think it's, a, you know, it's a pervasive view of children in our society that kids are property or that they're, um, you know, the sense of personal responsibility that, you know, parents have got this is, you know, a parent, it's the parental responsibility. And of course, parents are the primary duty bearers for children, but uh, this lack of um, an understanding um, and a view that children are citizens with rights and rights holders and you know, protected under international law and under domestic law. And uh, they are just not thought of as being citizens or as competent you know, you're taking an issue like the voting age, um, which continues to be a very vexing issue in this country that seems to, at the surface, to be a very controversial one, but it rests on this idea that children aren't competent. Uh, you know, we don't have a competency test for adults. We don't expect adults um, to prove that they are capable of voting. We just assume that they are. And uh, you don't, you know, we, we, you and I both know, we don't, have, lots of Canadians will go to the polls knowing very little about their um, candidates or party platforms. 
Um, they may have intellectual disabilities. They may be elderly and losing their competence, but we still provide them the right to vote and we do not disenfranchise them. Uh, but for children, we just assume them to be incompetent. Uh, you know, you and I both have kids and, you know, uh, in our schools right now, kids learn and an awful lot. They learn a ton about political science and about society. Many kids I meet know far more about politics than many adults in my life and are well-versed in these issues. They may not care about politics, but they care about the issues. Kids care about climate change. They care about their mental health. They care about racism, uh, even at a very young age. You know, We have a, a program called a Young Canadians Parliament, and our youngest members are currently six and seven years old. These kids are well-versed in their rights. They know what it's um, they're entitled to. Um, they have the, the capacity to sit at the table with uh, federal ministers and with senators and to have coherent discussions about public policy measures. I know these, you know, the members of the Young Canadians Parliament are a bit unique, but, you know, even the kids who are not politically engaged like that care about the issues and want to be engaged. And, you know, if they want the right to vote, well, why not let them? Um, you know, in, in federal parties, you can be a member of a party at the age of 14 and vote for your leader and vote in public policy discussions, but you can't vote as a citizen. And, you know, these are, this is just one amongst many reasons why we continue to see children being dismissed and crassly used as props in political election campaigns. Uh, you know, and I think, you know, if given the chance, kids could really prove us, um, you know, prove us wrong and, you know, really show that they, they are capable and, um, and have enormous capacity to contribute in a meaningful way to improving our society. I was having um, a discussion with another parent and she was telling me that, you know, the friends of her child, um, they wanted to get vaccinated, but their parents didn't want them to. And I was like, well, the Healthcare Consent Act in Ontario uh, doesn't require parental consent to get vaccination. Like they can go to a clinic and if, you know, like if they feel comfortable and safe to do so and get vaccinated. Uh, but then I went online and just thought, oh, you know, I better double check. I have that right. You know, <laughs> I haven't looked at that act in a long time, you know, better b- before I start, you know, lecturing people. <laughs> so, so, so I go and I go online and I see that, you know, some public health um, authorities are requiring uh, parents to be present. Some aren't. Some are doing it for safety reasons, i.e. if, you know, if a child had an allergic reaction or, or some other type of reaction, you know, they want to have someone else present, which, you know, I mean, does make sense, although it's a room full of clinicians. Um, and, and others, no reason given, just, you know, want parental consent, even though the child is can, you know, has capacity to consent for for themselves. Like, what does that have to do with regional diversity? Why would that be left up to regional public health units? Well, it's just, it's emblematic of our patchwork approach to um, how we treat our children. Uh, there are real inconsistencies within a province, let alone across this country. And I think, you know, at a very basic level, if we, you know, whether your child is born in Toronto or Edmonton or Iqaluit or St. John's, I think every every child deserves to have the same um, access to care and treatment and equitable access to services, and yet that simply isn't true. Um, and we have devolved our um, public policy making in a way that just um, really fails our children and kids fall through the gaps or where public policies may um, be violating children's rights, but you know there isn't anything done to challenge that. And 
it, again, we're just part of the idea of having something like a national commissioner for children and youth or having a national strategy uh, with clear national goals and uh, dedicated resources to improving the lives of our children would go a long way. We have simply don't have a national vision for our children right now. There is no plan. You know, going back a decade ago, when we back when we were in the top ten for children, we had a clear national plan of action. There was national dedicated leadership, and with all of that being dismantled, it's not surprising that we have lost our way. And uh, you know, we really have to get to the point where we actually believe that our children are a priority. And we put um, leadership and resources behind that to really help um, change that trajectory for our children. And how might, you know, engaging children in policymaking look like? Well, I mean, the different the methods you can use may vary, but, you know, our Young Canadians Parliament is one model that can be used um, and is being used by government um, to consult children. Um, the Young Canadians Parliament uh, meets regularly. These kids are from all walks of life. From uh, They represent the diversity of Canadian society. Um, they meet on a regular basis to learn about their rights on a, a wide range of issues. And uh, not only are they bringing forward their ideas and their own public policies and their own um, agenda of what needs to come forward in Parliament, uh, they are also a sounding board for government. So earlier this year, uh, when Minister Tagger was developing the State of Canada's Youth Report, you know, she and her team had the chance to consult the Young Canadians Parliament and seek their input about what it's like to be a young person in our country today. Um, when Senator Moody was developing her private member's bill for the Senate on the establishment of a commissioner for children, she came to the Children's Parliament and consulted them. Now, that's one example of how you can do it, but there's public polling that can happen with with kids of of various ages you know uh, but to see policymakers simply having the chance to meet with kids themselves um, to have facilitated discussions on these issues um, is something that can be done there is expertise and there are organizations like ours and others who are able to help support that you know we see many ministers the prime minister has a youth council uh, but i think the members have to be 15 or 16 to start and we have pointed out that that's a gap uh, you don't magically develop competency at the age of 15 we need to start in the early years and we have clearly proven that you can meaningfully engage very young children as young as six and seven and and sometimes even younger in policy decisions that affect their life you can't do it in a, you have to do it in an age appropriate way and support their um you know uh their developmental capacities but it, it certainly can be done and i think what surprises me Continually, when when I see kids in action and having the chance to have these discussions with policymakers, is they are often so bright and so creative, and they have this sense of urgency. We as adults can often become quite complacent. You know, we, our persistent child poverty problems, or child abuse rates, or the mental health concerns. Uh, you know, these issues are burning in the lives of our children. Uh, they know what it's like to suffer. They've seen it in their own lives, in the lives of their peers, and they just aren't prepared to wait and they expect us as adults to do better by them um, and uh, you know to some extent we're experiencing the Greta effect of that that rage and um, impatience and intolerance for the status quo but when I see policymakers at the table with these young kids having these discussions it ignites a fire in them and I see often policymakers taking off their political hats and their um, formal agendas and their talking points go out the window and they just become ordinary people. They were kids once themselves. They have kids. They are have grandkids, or they, you know, they know kids that they love. And 
um, it just really changes the tone of the conversation. You know, it's become quite common in, in political circles now to talk about when you add women, you change politics. Well, when you add kids, you change politics and it creates a sense of, um, it brings the heartbeat back to the conversation and it brings this burning urgency back and it creates this enormous um, creativity around what is possible. And uh, I think it's such a powerful thing to see in action. And I hope more of our political leaders will embrace that way of thinking and doing. That's such a great thought, you know, um, and, and so true. I mean, I've seen it even just, you know, uh, when Gerald uh, was working uh, in parliament, um, I would bring the kids around and all the leaders were nothing but smiles and bending down to the kids levels. Um, I remember particularly uh, Thomas Mulcair just being, you know, absolutely delightful um, with the kids. And, you know, since that time, I've, you know, sort of joked, but have been somewhat serious in saying that, you know, instead of having the press gallery dinner where everybody gets up and snarks about each other, given, you know, sort of the increasing polarization um, of the house, uh, maybe folks should just get together and like either bring their kids and pets or share stories or pictures <laughs> or something because they need to focus more on what they have in common and what they care about and less a and less uh, on uh, making cheap shots at the expense of each other. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, and, I've, and I've seen it, you know, so many times and it's, it's, you know, whether it's within our Senate or um, the House of Commons, you know, when kids are in the room, the dynamic changes and, uh, you know, our young Canadians parliament hasn't been able to come in person because of COVID. We hope that, that will change in the near future, but um, I've seen it happen in here in Canada. I've seen it happen around the world. I've seen it happen in the United Nations. It just, radically changes the tone of the conversation and the pace at which we work because they just drive us and fill us with this sense of hope and possibility and urgency and creativity. And I just, I hope we can somehow bring that back in and reignite that sense of possibility within our political leaders. And uh, yeah, it just changes so much. Um, at the end of this month on September 30th, it's Orange Shirt Day. And so I want to um, specifically acknowledge um, that your report, that the Children First Canada report, has specifically called out um, equitable funding and services for First Nations, Métis, and Inuit children. Um, can you just talk to us a little bit um, about why there's such a need to have a separate recommendation that is focused on these kids? Well, First Nations, Métis, and Inuit children are the first peoples of Turtle Island, uh, and they have suffered grave inequities um, as a result of colonization and the legacy of residential schools. And uh, whether they are on or off reserve, um, experience grave violations of their human rights. These are not just issues of our past, they are very much our present um, the work of Dr. Cindy Blackstock and the Caring Society and, and many other Indigenous leaders has really helped to put a spotlight on uh, the grave inequities that they experience and the uh, systemic discrimination um, that has happened and continues to happen. Um, I think we can all agree that First Nations, Métis, Native children have the right to clean water and to adequate housing and to um, you know, all the things that every child deserves and they just don't have it right now. And it's, uh, it has to change. And they, there is a spirit bear plan put forward by the caring society that we have endorsed and that needs to come into effect. The TRC's calls to action 
need to be implemented and they need to be um, moved forward by our government in a significant way. And, uh, you know, we really felt it warranted being called out on our election platform and it deserves the attention of our political leaders and of our, our citizens. This year has been a year of great awakening and reckoning for our country. And uh, I'm, I'm pleased to see that it is figuring in the election platforms and in the discussion, uh, perhaps not as significantly as it should be, but it, it needs to continue. And we hope that as candidates come knocking on the doors of people listening um, and uh, as Canadians head to the polls, so they're, they're thinking about these issues, then it will figure prominently in their decisions around who they vote for. So, you know, I think we have seen some policy attempts, right? So I think the Canada Child Benefit, the CCB, you know, was was an attempt um, on the part of the government. And it was, you know, recently the amount of that benefit was raised. We're seeing some things around mental health. Um, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're seeing, I guess, some attempts at policy I think if I'm hearing you correctly, you're saying we need this commissioner who's going to make sure that the interests of the child, just like we've done with gender, um, are at the center of policy making, so that these policy initiatives really hit their mark. But we need to approach public policy through the lens of children. You know, we have seen the power of looking at policy through the lens of gender uh, and applying the GBA plus lens and um, the difference that that has made for the allocation of resources for women in particular and for public policies that improve the lives of women, we need to take, take that same approach to children. They represent nearly a quarter of our population and 100% of our future. And we can't just simply think of them as being a part of a, a family or the responsibility of parents. Of course, they are. Um, and you know, families play a huge role. And so things like the CCB and childcare will play you know, prominent roles in improving the lives of children. But if we don't think of children as being uh, unique citizens with their own rights, then we simply won't see the type of uh, changes that are required. And we really do need a big, bold plan to improve the lives of our children. We can't just kind of chip away at this and make improvements in this area or that. We need a big, bold plan. It's um, We have reached the state of crisis and it will require dedicated leadership and dedicated resources. We've called for the creation of a catalytic investment fund of $2 billion. That may sound like a lot of money, but it's, it's, a, you know, it's going to take that level of investment um, being provided to the charitable sector, to children's hospitals and or, you know, organizations working on the front lines, not only to meet the urgent driving needs that kids have right now, but to address the systems change and to have things like a commissioner and a national strategy uh, moving us. We also want to see data collection. We actually don't have systematic data collection on children, which is baffling to me as a Canadian, but, uh, you know, Stats Canada wants to be able to do this. We've worked with them really closely as a partner and they've done their best to capture data on children throughout the pandemic, but we want to see an annual survey being done on the health and status of our children so that we can track progress over time where you can identify gaps and things like a children's budget where we actually, you know, we have, uh, you know, greater transparency around how funding is being spent on children. Where is that money going? Is it yielding a return on investment? And if not, can we redirect those resources um, to evidence-based solutions that will measurably improve the lives of our children? These are some of the solutions that we've looked at and put forward in the children's platform that would be real game changers. They're not revolutionary, but they would actually 
measurably um, improve the lives of kids today and sustain progress for years to come. Now, Sarah, this is the at-risk podcast. So I, I just wanted to pause for a moment and, and ask you in the Raising Canada 2021 report, um, it's framed as, you know, threats to childhood. And I just wanted to ask you about the use of the term threats and why that was the, the right word choice for, for your report and, and, and the information and the message you're trying to convey. It's provocative, I know, but I think it really, um, it's not overstating to, to, st- to say that these are threats to our children. Our children's lives are in jeopardy. They face very grave violations of their human rights and their survival, let alone their development is jeopardized when we don't uh, make these investments, when we don't have the policies and um, investments needed for our kids to survive and thrive. Uh, And we've seen that clearly. The proof is in the data around the numbers of children whose lives have been lost to suicide or to preventable accidents or preventable illnesses, let alone the numbers of children whose lives are diminished by issues like child abuse and poverty and neglect. Kids' lives are in threat. And, you know, this is a grave risk to our country. The future of our country depends on the strength of our children and youth. When we don't invest in kids, when we don't protect their human rights, it, it jeopardizes not only the survival of our children, but the future of our nation. How can a country prosper if our kids aren't prospering? And I think that's really what we're trying to provoke is a powerful discussion about the state of childhood in our country to really confront this pervasive myth that the kids are all right and that this is a world-leading country for kids. We have to be provocative and really challenge that discussion and, and be really clear about what's at stake. Sarah Austin, thank you so much for being a world-class champion for children in Canada and for taking this time to speak with us about the top 10 threats to childhood. Thank you so much, Jody. It was a real pleasure. Nothing about kids without kids, which is why I'm delighted Simi has joined me. Thank you and welcome to At Risk, Simi. Now tell us, what is your message to the federal party leaders during Election 44? Federal leaders of Canada, we the youth would like to remind you that the Canadian government ratified the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child, yet we are not holding up our end of the agreement. Children and youth are struggling throughout Canada, especially through this pandemic, and it is your responsibility to help us, listen to us, and represent us in government. We need you more than ever to include children in decisions that affect our lives, take systematic measures to ensure our well-being, and ultimately, dedicate yourself to the leaders of future Canada. Thank you for listening to the season opener of the At Risk podcast, and I hope you continue to listen throughout the season. And if you're eligible, please be sure to vote in Election 44.